This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Not everyone is a refugee like you. Not everyone has, has parents with, with such horrible, harrowing tales. And I found this really profound but simple poem by Emily Dickinson. Social media would have absolutely have been her thing. I just feel it's really strange that our genre of poetry could be defined by a social media platform, even though I absolutely love Instagram. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped a career, from finding a new identity as a refugee in a new country to favourite poets and daring to test out one's writing on social media for the first time. You can comment on social media with the hashtag IQ2. Joining me now is Lang Liav, one of the new generation of young poets and novelists who've built a huge international following through posting work on social media. Also an artist and novelist, you now live in New Zealand where you published your first collection of poetry, Love and Misadventure, back in 2013. A breakout success, according to Publishers Weekly, you're a pioneer of the generation of younger female poets who've been connecting with readers online initially. Your latest poetry collection, Love Looks Pretty on You, is a celebration of the female spirit. Welcome to How I Found My Voice, Lang. Thank you so much, Samir. I'm so happy to be here. Now, your parents fled the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and you were born in a refugee camp in Thailand before coming to Australia as refugees. Can I ask what your parents told you about the life they'd left behind? They don't like to talk about it too much. I think it's it's quite a um, upsetting thing for them because they both my mum and my dad came from very large families and sadly they were the only survivors. And I suppose a lot of my writing is about my mother and she was pregnant with me when she was on the run from the Khmer Rouge, which is like such a painful thing to think about, that she was in the position that she was in. And I always think about her bravery, you know, in all that chaos and madness, there was this oasis of calm and I was I was there sleeping in her womb. That's amazing. One of the poems you say your mother does inspire quite a lot of your poetry 
There's a poem that you read in front of your mother. Can you read it and tell me about her reaction? Oh, absolutely. It was it was quite a magical moment because I toured in so many parts of the world. I finally did an, an event in Sydney and it was the first time my family and friends could be in an audience, my mother included. And I wrote this poem and it's about my mother and I was able to read it on stage and, of course, it was a, a very special moment. My mother. My mother was a woman without country as I lay curled in her womb. Her body marked for death, teeming with life, my life, barely a glow when she glared into the pit of darkness, a hairline crack from death, crawling to the light, dreaming of a faraway shore, and a little girl in her arms. My mother, my safe passage into this world, fought a war to show me how wars can be won. Moving forward all these years to the life that my family and I have now built in Sydney, how we've endured, I think that is the only way you can ever win a war, to just endure and live on. Can I ask about your childhood, Cabramatta, this this town near Sydney? Tell me about what kind of child, what kind of town you were growing up in. Because we migrated to a small town in, in Sydney, there were a lot of people who were in the same position as me. There was a lot of sadness and a feeling of desperation that permeated the area where I grew up. And I think all of those things, they're what you absorb as a, as a child growing up. And you don't really feel that your life is particularly different or special to anyone else until you start going to school and going out into the world. And you realise that not everyone is a refugee like you. Not everyone has, has parents with, with such horrible, harrowing tales. Where and when did you develop your love of words? I actually remember the first time I picked up a book of children's poetry and I found this really profound but simple poem by Emily Dickinson. I still remember the feeling of feeling like something made perfect sense to you and uh, I actually would love to read it out to you if you'd like. Please. A word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. So I remember, as, as I mentioned earlier, the feeling of reading that poem for the first time and I, I think that's when I, f- I fell in love with poetry. And at school, did you have poetry notebooks or something that you were passing oh, around? Oh, absolutely. All through school I would write my poetry in notebooks and, and pass them around and I, I still have school friends contacting me on Facebook and saying, oh, I've still got a notebook of, of your poems. So it's something that I've naturally always done and, and I guess when I posted my work, you know, as, as an adult on, onto Tumblr for the first time, it almost feels like I'm doing what I've always done but just on a much bigger scale. See, what's really interesting is, you know, that, that poem by Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. you could, it could almost have been a poem about writing poetry on social media, that a word comes alive when you put it out there. Oh, absolutely. And yet she was writing privately and obviously her poetry wasn't read you know in her own lifetime but I'm fascinated by the fact that you feel a real affinity oh absolutely I mean stylistically I think I was very influenced by her especially in the beginning and you can see a lot of that in my first book Love and Misadventure which was comprised mainly of short rhymes with um, philosophical thoughts embedded into them she uses um, really fantastic techniques that are so unconventional, like such as slant rhymes. I, to my knowledge, I, I think she was the one that 
invented slant rhymes and I love the idea of rhymes that don't actually quite rhyme or, or you can have like a, a rhyme that's in the middle of the sentence rather than on the end line which is more traditional. I was also thinking that in a way would an Emily Dickinson today be posting her words on Tumblr rather than keeping them secret? Absolutely. To be discovered years Social ago. media would have absolutely have been her thing, especially in her later later years. She only mainly corresponded f- through letters and apparently she only spoke to people through doors. So. That's right. <laughs> and, and I wish she did live in a time where she could have her work. As you might know, her work was heavily ev- edited and I think that that's a shame. Mm. Whereas now there's a sense that the, the work can go and I, I love the rawness of that. You say you love the rawness. It could also be terrifying. Can you take me back to that first time when and how you made the decision to post some of your writing publicly? Was it on Tumblr? Yes, Tumblr. Tumblr was the first time I, I posted my work. At, at the time I was I was working as an, as an artist and also picking up freelance work. I was heading into my 30s. I just almost felt like I was running out of um, runway, if that makes sense. I was like a plane that never really, really took off. I remember seeing a quote on Tumblr one night and it was after quite a particularly tough night. It just said, start where you are and use what you have, do what you can. You know, it was it was just one of those, you know, cliche quotes that you see. But for some reason, it, it struck a chord with me. And the next day I posted up my poetry and almost right away, it just went viral. How did that feel? Was it scary? It was. It was scary. Um, but I, I think because I'd like I said, it's something that I've always done. It's always been second nature to me. If you put your work out there too, you know, out in the schoolyard, there's no real difference to putting it out in the schoolyard to putting it out to, um, you know, the, the entire world. I know that sounds a, a little bit strange, but um, in a way that's what it was. Someone who's now known as a poet and a novelist, you really began your creative career in visual arts, and you went into fashion as well. So Mm -hmm. tell me what kind of art you were making and why that seemed to be the path you were going down. Well, when I left school, I had the option between art or literature. I have no idea why I chose to go with art. Did you go to art college then? Yes, I did. I went to the College of Fine Arts in Sydney, which was wonderful. I absolutely loved loved my time there. And when, when I left, I I started a fashion label, Akina. It was a cult fashion label. And Can you describe the clothes to me? Describe them to me. I'm fascinated. If I was to describe it, it it's like a gothic cultish label. Oh, Emily Dickinson would totally have worn these clothes. Yes, I know. She would have worn the clothes. <laughs> It had a, had a bit of a Victorian feel to it, and it was based around a story. It, it was it was about a girl who was obsessed with buttons, so she would attack teddy bears to steal their button eyes. Akina was going going fantastically well. I was being asked to do a variety of things, um, and I was saying yes to everything, being so young and um, you know full of energy. And because I was saying yes to too many things, I think it just came a breaking point where I was working too many hours. I was absolutely exhausted. And then I just started saying no. And with a fashion label, as as soon as, you know, you, you do start saying no to, to things, it starts to go south. So what, what I did was I, I moved home, moved back to my parents, and I just spent the next few months just writing poetry. Like it was just a huge flood of, of poetry. 
at the time, I had a lot of my, my friends and family saying, you're crazy to walk away from fashion. This is like, you know, a huge mistake. What are you doing? And I couldn't explain it then. Now, in hindsight, looking back, it's probably the best thing I could have done. And I, I think it's just a lesson that you know, as an artist and a creator, you've always got to follow your intuition. You may know that certainly in Britain, and I think probably um, internationally too, there is some snobbery in the kind of traditional literary world um, oh, about the success of younger women poets online. You know, the idea mm. that you know they're not proper poets, whatever they mean by that. Yeah. How far has that affected you? Um, does it bother you that some people think that? I mean, you know, if it's happened to my heroes like Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost, I mean, I think it's something that happens all throughout time. As you know, Robert Frost, he had his fair share of critics as well. In fact, it's something that's present in, in a lot of his poetry. Remind us, so there'll be people who don't know, what was the what was the criticism he was getting? Robert Frost wrote in a very colloquial manner. He wrote about everyday themes, um, which is a, which is a, the criticism that, you know, pop poetry, the current movement um, that's taking off at the moment is being criticised for. And I, I think throughout history, the same criticisms will happen over and over again. So having that past to draw from just reminds me that you know, the critics aren't always right. In fact, a lot of the times they're completely wrong. Well, of course, Robert Frost and Emily Dickinson are now kind of considered great writers of the canon. Oh, absolutely. Have you got a Robert Frost poem? I do, I do. This is my favourite and it's, it's called Lodged. The rain to the wind said, You push and I'll pelt. They so smote the garden bed that the flowers actually knelt and lay lodged, though not dead. I know how the flowers felt. I wanted to ask a bit more specifically about the idea of you as a so-called insta-poet and the idea of sharing poetry through social media. You know, what has it been like and can you explain why it's it's so powerful? Well, I think insta-poetry is a very odd term. I think pop poetry is more appropriate to the movement. A lot of poets did not start out on Instagram, myself included. I actually got to Instagram quite a, quite a bit late. Um, I started on on Tumblr. I, I just feel it's it's really strange that a, a genre of poetry could be defined by a social media platform. Even though I absolutely love Instagram, I think it's a one it's a wonderful medium. But there is a lot of misinformation online. I mean, sometimes I'd share like a quote from my my novel for example, or just a line from a longer piece of prose and people would actually misconstrue that and say, well, that's a poem, but it actually isn't. So it's just one of those things. And why why Instagram now? And you say you started on Tumblr. I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could just talk about the different experience of using different platforms. I'm on Tumblr and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. They're They're the main social media platforms that, that I use. And each one has it has its own personality and, and it's got its own little quirks. I mean, Tumblr is, is quite underground. Uh, it's quite anonymous. So I, I think there are things on Tumblr I wouldn't post on, on Twitter. Instagram feels more like a, for lack of a better word, like a shop front like your display cabinet. Tumblr is just all the crazy stuff that, that you love, um, you know, all the fandoms that you belong to. I was also wondering about your audience. You have a massive following. Do you know much about who your audience is? 
They are overwhelmingly women. They vary from all different age groups. I mean, there's this common misconception, and I think it's it's absolutely wrong that all my um, re- my readership are teenage girls. Um, that is absolutely not the case. And I know this from from touring, from speaking to them on social media. I mean, there's such a huge age spectrum there. What do your audience who get in touch with you tell you then why they love your work? They feel that my work is almost like a friend when, when they're going through a tough time. It resonates with them and it gives them some sort of comfort that there is someone else who understands how they feel. Tell us what you're working on now. I'm actually uh, working on my second novel, which is titled Poemsia. It's about a girl who, who dreams of being a poet and it, it takes you through her journey. I just got my feedback um, you know, from my editor which is always quite nerve-wracking, but it was um, good news. So I'm, I'm super happy and excited and it comes out in, in October. Langlia, thank you so much. How I Found My Voice is a podcast from Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jasset. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please support us by taking a moment to rate and review How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts. 